Maverick News presents The Rick Walker Show Defrag Your Mind Greetings, Maverick family and new viewers. I know you're out there watching from all over the world. Great to have everybody back tonight. We're off to a little bit of a late start tonight. Um, just a lot of things going on here. So in order to get prepared, I just needed a little more time. So we're starting at 7 p.m. tonight, Eastern Standard Time, instead of the usual 6 p.m. But we have so much to share with you this evening. We are going to show you some uh, highlights from the Carter funeral. We have the final report from the National Citizens Inquiry, which, of course, looked into the government response to the pandemic in Canada. They now have the final report available. We'll take a look at that together. We have, in addition to that, rabid dogs. Well, I don't know if they have rabies, but they sure don't seem to like cars very much. They, uh, you're, you're not going to believe what I'm going to show you, what they've done to these cars in Texas. Unbelievable. These crazy wild dogs you you won't it's you wouldn't believe it unless unless it was caught on video and it has been caught on video so we'll show you that tonight too we have in addition to that wildfires um court case arsonist just going to draw your attention to that a lot of speculation uh, over the summer, you know, why were these these fires started? Who was starting them? How was it happening? And you didn't hear too much about what I'm going to share with you tonight. But this is an ongoing saga as well. Um, the Holodomor is going to become part of the educational curriculum in Ontario. If you don't know what that is... We'll fill you in. Um, and in addition to that, we have new footage from the J6 incident that shows Trump supporters who appear to be protecting police. Now, there, talk about flipping the script. There you have it. The Sovereignty Act being used in Alberta in a response to the federal government's energy policies, and now a war of words between the premier of Alberta and Canada's minister of environment and climate change, Stephen Guibault. We have all that. And I have a commercial. Now, I don't like to run commercials, and I'm not getting paid to run this one, but we're going to run this later in the broadcast because... Man, I'll tell you, it uh, it's just so well done. It's like, you know those, you know how people like to watch the Super Bowl commercials? Well, this is 
one of the best commercials I've ever seen produced. It's a General Motors commercial. And uh, man, it's it speaks to me. And I think it'll speak to you. It's uh, a new form of Americana and Canadiana. It's very sentimental. You're going to, you're going to appreciate it once you see it, I think. So stay with me. We have a lot of ground to cover tonight. Greetings, brave mavericks. Our quest for truth continues. We go beyond fake news. Together we expose propaganda. Together we pull others out of rabbit holes. We are maverick thinkers. We are all unique individuals, individuals, defenders of individual rights and freedoms, credible, trusted, grounded in reality. Maverick News, Maverick News. Defending free speech, free speech, speech. Donate at freedomreporters.com. Do it now. Tomorrow. Maybe too late. Too late. Too late. Too late. Maverick News. The world is watching. Let's go to the uh, the funeral for Rosalind Carter. She was memorialized today as a matriarch who felt most comfortable among the most vulnerable and the least well off Jimmy Carter was there in the front row her husband 99 years old this is the second day of a three-day schedule of events public events celebrating the life of Rosalind Carter She passed away November 19th at home in Plains, Georgia. She was 96. former First Lady of the United States.
and we move on. So also today, the National Citizens Inquiry, which conducted a series of hearings across the country and Canada, looking into the government response to the pandemic. It went on for, I think it was six weeks, approximately, and they've been doing a lot of other work since then. The NCI released its Final report today, they did so during a transmission broadcast online. We have a copy of the, the document tonight, and we're going to pick up the, the broadcast for you with Sean Buckley, who has been on this program a few times talking about uh, about the report and here's Sean lead counsel for the National Citizens Inquiry today the in the process we issued summons after summons after summons to government officials inviting them to attend and participate that not a single government official chose to attend is now part of our historical record. And their absence speaks loudly. The National Citizens Inquiry is also unique in its scope. We traveled across the country giving a voice to Canadians across the nation. We heard the sworn testimony of 305 witnesses, all questioned by lawyers and questioned by the commissioners. We have created the largest and most robust record of the COVID experience in the world. <clears throat> and we did this in a climate of fear. Our proceedings began on March 16th, 2023 in Truro, Nova Scotia. That is eight and a half months ago. And this, this leg has led us to forget how much fear the nation was in when we began our proceedings. It's been now long enough without, without us being muzzled with masks, long enough without us being locked in our homes that we're starting to feel a little bit normal. But we would do ourselves a disservice as this report is released if we do not recall what came before and the context and the climate of fear in which the National Citizens Inquiry hearings took place. Beginning in the spring of 2020, we were plunged into a culture of fear which threw the entire nation into a panic. Many believed that there was a dangerous virus that posed a mortal threat to them and their loved ones. Others saw the country become a police state. There was public discourse about putting unvaccinated Canadians into camps. 
there was public discourse about criminalizing the refusal to take a medical treatment. We were put under house arrest. We were muzzled like animals with masks. We were viciously divided into camps, the vaxxed and the unvaxxed. We were censored. We had our bank accounts frozen. I recently gave two lectures, commissioners, in which I asked the audience, put up your hand if at the height of the COVID madness, you honestly believed that the army would be going door to door, dragging unvaccinated people out of their homes and forcibly jabbing them. I was asking roughly 850 people and these audiences would be mixed, both vaxxed and unvaxxed. Commissioners, almost every hand went up. <clears throat> the country was under such a cloud of evil and darkness that a large number of Canadians believed that the army would be used to forcefully vaccinate us. We watched in horror as masked police officers, and it is not okay for police officers to be masked against the citizens for which they are to protect and serve. And so for those officers who chose to, to follow orders and wear a mask, I say, shame on you. But we watched masked police officers dressed in black to be intimidating, forcibly dismantle the peaceful trucker protest. I watched live stream on February 18th, 2022, as a police horse trampled Roberta Paulson. We all watched as our fellow Canadians locked arms to resist and chanted to each other, hold the line. As one by one, the police picked them off and arrested them. And as we saw during some video at the National Citizens Inquiry, at times put the boots to those on the ground. We watched and we saw and we remember. But for all those watching this, I want you to remember that beautiful event because something beautiful happened there. There was an example set for all of us to follow because we watched our fellow Canadians hold the line as long as they could. <clears throat> and they've set for us a beautiful example to follow and we owe them and we owe the truckers a debt of gratitude because they bought us a period of peace. It was no accident that the following month in March of 2022, the provincial restrictions started to fall and most of the federal restrictions, but for the travel advisory or travel restriction fell. We owe them a debt of gratitude, and it was that period of peace that they brought us that allowed the NCI to happen. 
It was during this lull that we appeared on the screen. <clears throat> now, when we started, there was an absolute climate of fear in the nation. We had witness after witness after witness drop out because they were afraid to testify. Some were afraid of economic consequences. Some were afraid of social consequences. Some were afraid of other consequences. I was afraid to go in front of the camera. We were in such a climate of fear. And commissioners, you will remember when you went through the commissioner selection process and when we were preparing you to be independent and run the hearings, that there were discussions about the fact that there may be repercussions for being a commissioner. And there may yet be repercussions for being a commissioner. <clears throat> it's like we've been in the eye of the hurricane. We were in this storm of this COVID madness. And then the truckers appeared and we've gotten this respite. It's like the hurricane moved over us and we were now in the eye. But we're starting to feel the winds again. We're starting to feel other winds blowing. We know that the hurricane, the storm is coming and that we face uncertain times. But this time, this time it will be different for most of us because some things are certain commissioners. It is certain that we will hold the line as long as we can. It is certain that a large number of Canadians will stand with us and hold the line. Something totally unexpected happened as we toured the land, giving a voice to each other. We learned that we are not alone. We had felt isolated, we felt afraid. We learned that we are not alone. We learned that we can overcome our fear. We are going to feel fear going forward, but we have been there, we have done that, and we understand that we can master and overcome our fear. And we learn that we can no longer sit still. We can no longer sit on our couches and allow Canada to lose its freedoms. We've already lost our freedoms. We now have to work. We need to participate. We need to hold the line to get our freedoms back. And we have come to understand that. So things are now very different. And most importantly, we came to understand that our God is with us. We saw God use the National Citizens Inquiry to bring healing and to bring strength. And we heard his voice calling us to return to him so that he can heal our land. So this time will be very different. And this entire exercise, this entire inquiry should never have happened. It was totally impossible. And time and time and time again, we were on the brink of disaster and collapse. And God stepped in by bringing people forward to make this happen. And we all understand, everyone who even just watched the hearings, understand that we have been allowed to participate in something much greater than ourselves. 
and to all of you who participated and to you commissioners, I can honestly say that standing with you through this experience has been one of the most precious and honorable moments of my life. And I am deeply grateful for being able to participate. Now, commissioners, you are going to release your historic report. You have made findings. You've made positive recommendations. The nation is going to be shocked by reading an independent report without a political agenda, a report designed to help us get our freedoms back and become the nation that we want to be. And we don't know what will happen next. We had the truckers write the first chapter of this story and they bought us a period of peace, a period of respite. We had the National Citizens Inquiry write the second chapter where we came together and understood that we're not alone and that we need to stand together. The next chapter is up for those watching to write. It's for those Canadians who understand now that they must hold the line with us. It's, it's up to them to write this, this next chapter. And that's the exciting part because together we will see how we move forward and make Canada a loving, peaceful and free nation once again. So commissioners, on behalf of all Canadians, it is my honor to invite you to release your report. Ken Drysdale, and good NCI morning, Commissioner. Everyone. My name's Ken Drysdale. I'm the chairman of the commissioners. And we want to start off this morning as I'm going to provide an overview of the inquiry, you know, what was done, how it was done, what the intent was, why the National Citizens Inquiry was required in the first place. And then there will be time for each one of the commissioners to provide their own statement concerning the report. So having said that, we, the commissioners of the National Citizens Inquiry, wish to express our heartfelt gratitude for the tremendous honor and privilege of serving on this distinguished commission. At this stage, as the inquiry draws to a close, we reflect upon the incredible journey we have taken together and the significant impact our collective efforts have had on the pursuit of truth, justice, and accountability. The commissioners have had a first-hand opportunity to travel Canada from coast to coast and meet some of the most extraordinary and courageous citizens of Canada. These witnesses, although aware of the potential consequences of their testimony, bravely stepped forward and set an example for the rest of Canadians. Throughout this arduous but profoundly important pro process, we have had the opportunity to work alongside some of the most dedicated professionals, experts, and stakeholders. Okay. Unwavering so commitment let's just pull this down. Transparency, fairness, and I have the report. Truth so let's go through the report together. Um, I'll get that teed up and we'll take a look at it on the other side of this.
Maverick News. The world is watching. I'm back, and there it is, the NCI's final report. Canada's response to COVID-19. Inquiry into the appropriateness and efficacy of the COVID-19 response in Canada. So obviously we can't read the whole thing. It is lengthy. And we've already seen the introduction during the, uh, the video presentation. But we can see here that it's extensive, well-documented. Look at how detailed it is. Many weeks of testimony. Many, many people from different walks of life. This is just the index. And it goes on and on and on. We have at least, what, 643 pages. So here's the summary. It says uh, Canada's federal, provincial, and municipal government's responses to COVID-19 were unprecedented. The policy, legal, and health authority interventions into the lives of Canadians, our families, businesses, and communities were, and to a great extent remain, significant in particular these interventions have impacted the physical and mental health, civil liberties and fundamental freedoms, jobs and livelihoods and overall social and economic well-being of nearly all Canadians. And, you know, even though this report is out tonight, uh, in the back of my mind, um, obviously, I'm wondering what response I will get for running this on various social media platforms. Uh, how are, I, I have no idea what they will do just because I'm sitting here talking about this. And that's the new world that we live in. A world of censorship. Our country underwent a dramatic transformation, it says here, within a short time span. Sweeping lockdowns and restrictions on rights and freedoms that would once have been considered unthinkable in our country were adopted with incredible speed and with no room for public comment or debate. This was in and of itself a phenomenon. That is absolutely true. The testimony objectively demonstrates that an unprecedented attack was carried out on the basic rights, freedoms, and way of life of Canadian citizens, not since World War II have so many lives been lost due to measures imposed on Canadians by their government. Again, very true. It is important to appreciate that this statement is based on sworn testimonies of the events and experiences described by the witnesses and that these testimonies, as incredible as they are, do not capture the full breadth of the events that took place. The COVID-19 pandemic, which began in late 2019, presented governments worldwide with an unprecedented opportunity to change the direction of their respective nations with the official narrative to contain the spread of the virus and prevent healthcare systems from being overwhelmed 
Many countries resorted to implementing strict non-pharmaceutical interventions. And we all know what happened. And the report goes on. And we know about the lockdowns. We all lived through it. And it was unprecedented. I've never experienced anything like it in my life. And I hope that we never quite go through that again. And yet it still seems to hang over us like a dark, dark cloud. So, yes, we had the inquiry happen. It talks about the structure of the inquiry, how that all went down. It gives um, an assessment of much of the testimony. Talks about the pandemic itself. And, of course, goes into some detail here on what the government did step by step by date. You can see here a timeline laid out and how our government and our government institutions reacted, the policies that were laid out. Talks about the inquiry itself, how its citizen was citizen-led, and the work of the, of the, the uh, NCI continues. These are the main commissioners. How it worked, the procedures. What we should do is, I think, skip right ahead. Now let's go here. They have recommendations, I believe. So let's see if we can find those. We have... Pandemic procedures, public hearings, yes. Analysis. Response of the courts, undermining democratic, undermining democratic institutions, yes. International law. Coercion does not equal consent. Policing during COVID-19, that was a problem. Neglect and isolation of seniors, the effects of sustained propaganda and terror. We certainly heard about that during the inquiry. We ran the inquiry front to back in real time right here on the Maverick News Channel. Um, talks about the education system, the impact that it had on education, on an entire generation of Canadians, young people, it impacted their educations. Science versus scientism, <laughs> yes. Um, medical practices and ethics. A lot of that stuff was thrown right out the window. The response of the Canadian courts. Where are the recommendations? Volume three transcripts, conclusions, 629. So let's fast forward all the way down to 629. If I can find it. Again, my reader is uh, not really. I don't know why it's numbering the pages like this in the thousands instead of by the hundreds. And it's not, 
My computer is freezing up here a bit, so let the computer catch up. And hopefully that's not having an impact on the video. But my digital reader here is having some problems, for sure. It's because there are so many pages, it's so long. Let's get down. Let's get down to business here. It's trying to catch up. I'll tell you what. Well, the computer catches up. I'll let you take a look at this. The sharing of biased and false, false news has become, become all too common on, on social, social media. media. More alarming than some media in an ocean of lies a century deep, the truth awaits. Choose not the red pill. Choose not the blue pill. For both are an illusion. Discover the power of M. The power of individuality. We are mavericks. We are the way to the light. Fear not the storm. Join our quest for truth. Truth will set you free. Maverick News. The world is watching. The New World Order. Government overreach. The Great Reset. Mainstream media lies. Now more than ever, independent voices are needed. Donate now, at freedomreporters.com. That's freedomreporters.com. Maverick News. The antivirus program. For your mind. Knights of Malta. Maverick News. Join us. The world is watching. Okay, I'm here. I am having a little bit of um, a challenge here, trying to navigate through this whole thing because it's just so darn long. But where we're looking for the conclusions, I can't find them. There's so much material in here, which is a good thing. It's detailed. Whether the government will pay any mind. <laughs> That's another thing. Volume three transcripts. So we have to go back before that. We want to go 
Can you see that on the screen? Let me put it up here and you can share in my frustration, trying to weave through this thing. Um, conclusion. So it's before that volume three, way down here. So I don't know where the conclusions are. What we should do, I guess, is what we can do is maybe get a wrap up on the video. Let's do that. We'll get the final comments on the video. And that way, we'll hear what they have to say to kind of conclude things. Yeah, we'll let them do the speaking. How about that? Let's pick this up here. We'll go back to Sean Buckley and the commissioners. And here we go. So that, um, that is the final question that we're going to allow today just simply because we have to take a break and and for those of us uh, or those watching us we're repeating the commission being reconvened in the french language for those canadians who are french speaking um for those of you who participated today i think you'll agree with me that once again when we participate in the national citizens inquiry uh, we have a somewhat unique experience as we come together and we feel like we're part of something bigger because we are part of something bigger. And, and <clears throat> my experience today has been that the commissioners have shared uh, not just wisdom, but compassion with us. And that the questions that were brought forward by the press and the members of the public um, just show some profound insight. And uh, they were all good questions. And the dialogue is something that, that I think all Canadians should watch. So I'll encourage all of you to share the links that will come out for this, because I think that this would be another healing experience for us to share with our neighbors going forward. On behalf of the National Citizens Inquiry uh, Commissioners, thank you for your continued service. Um, for those of the press and the public that came And for those of us, I okay. So that didn't help a lot. There's just too much material to go through here. You know, I can only absorb so many pages in a day. And this is one of the reasons I was actually late starting this evening. Let me just scroll back up here. I really want to see what the recommendations or conclusions are in this document. And I think you probably get a pretty good idea anyway. But it's so difficult to uh, absorb, absorb all this. And I, I mean, I watched pretty much all, the whole inquiry from beginning to end. See, I'm way past this. There's no way. I can get through this. 
And certainly I can't digest all this on the air with you here tonight. It's just going to get to be, it's too much. It's too much for me, folks. Just says here, the evidence offered in this transcript is true and faithful record of witness testimony. Um, and uh, yeah. I'll have to go through it. We'll have to get an assessment. Maybe we'll just get Sean Buckley to come on the show and, and talk about this thing. This is impossible. And there, there's, it received like virtually, honestly, no media attention today. Um, very little. Um. Just give me another minute here. I'm going to come right back. We're going to move on to other news. Maybe we'll come back to this. If in between things I can absorb more of the material, but um, I'm not doing it justice here tonight. There was another exchange in the House of Commons today in Parliament. Um, between Pierre Polyev, Prime Minister, on the economy, inflation, you know, today I was in my town. I saw a new billboard go up. There was, uh, we have this housing crisis. There was going to be a condo development downtown. And instead of the condos, we instead have a giant billboard. Well, a billboard erected instead saying the project has been canceled because the local council increased taxes. So the developer has canceled the construction. That's what I saw today in my town. So much for building more homes. And here's the exchange in parliament today. Topic of discussion, the economy. After eight years, this prime minister is not worth the cost, Mr. Speaker. He said that doubling the national debt would have no effect because interest rates were low. But those same deficits have fueled interest rate 
increases. And next year, we will spend $52 billion a year. That's $3,000 per capita in debt service. That's more than we'll be spending on health. Why is the prime minister spending more for bankers than for nurses? The right honorable prime minister. Mr. Speaker, since last week, more and more Canadians are having trouble believing the leader of the opposition. Let me bring back the true facts. Canada's debt is the lowest in the G7. We have the best debt to GDP ratio in the G7 and inflation keeps going down while maintaining services that Canadians rely on. The conservative leader would cut childcare services to seniors, benefits, uh, and care for children. We will continue to invest. We're there for Canadians. We will continue to make responsible investments. The Honourable Leader of the Opposition. Mr. Speaker, that's false. Seniors are having to cut now, and other Canadians too, uh, when it comes to groceries, for example. The Director of Quebec Food Bank said that the situation is unprecedented and dramatic. 61% of food banks were running short of supplies. That's the poverty after eight years of this government who's boosted food prices with his inflationist spending and his carbon tax. Will he reverse those policies so Canadians can afford to eat? The right honourable prime minister. Mr. Speaker, it's getting a bit hard to believe what the opposition leader is saying because instead of accelerating the enactment and the passage of Bill C-56, which would help Canadians with more competition in the grocery sector, he held up its passage. He found ways to slow that bill down, and that bill could help Canadians. We will continue to help Canadians out. We will invest in the economy in supports for Canadians while staying on a responsible financial course. It's impossible to believe anything this Prime Minister says. First, when he gave $15 billion for one battery plant, he said there'd be no foreign workers. It was all a rumour. And then he said it would be one. And then his minister said there'd be a few. Now the company says it will be 900. This is $15 billion, $1,000 in cost for every single family. And now they're giving the money for 900 workers to do foreign workers to do a job that the Canadian Building Trades Union said could be done by our people at a cost of $300 million of lost wages for our union workers. Will the Prime Minister release the contract so we find out how many Canadian tax dollars are going to foreign replacement workers? The right honourable Prime Minister. Again, Mr. Speaker, I'm going to have to uh, correct the facts uh, in this House of Commons, yes, given uh, what the Leader of the Opposition continues to say. 2,300 local Canadian construction jobs and 2,500 permanent Canadian jobs when the Stellantis plant is completed. Right. There'll be 3,000 jobs in the region when the North Pole plant in Quebec is completed. Uh, you'd think the Leader of the Opposition would support those, but he doesn't. No, His he uncontrollable doesn't. urge to make everything a partisan issue means he's not supporting the investments that are going to help in Windsor, in St. Thomas, uh, in Quebec, or elsewhere across the country. Right. He wants cuts. We want investments in the future of Canadians. Right.
the Honourable Leader of the Opposition. This Prime Minister has forced 7 million Canadians to cut back on their diet to a point where they are no longer healthy. This Prime Minister has forced Canadians to cut their budget for food and therefore a record smashing 2 million people are lined up at a food bank every month around corners in ways that we haven't seen since the Great Depression. That's the austerity he's opposed on Canadians. Now he wants to quadruple the carbon tax on the farmers who bring us our food. We have a common sense conservative bill, C234. Will the Prime Minister stop blocking this bill in the Senate, let it pass so that our farmers can produce food and our people can afford to eat it? The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, if the Leader of the Opposition actually cared about Canadians being able to afford their food, uh, they wouldn't have dragged their heels uh, on the passage of C-56 uh, that is increasing competition in the grocery sector. Uh, but indeed, Mr. Speaker, there are a lot of factors that, uh, that deliver higher food prices, uh, not just for Canadians, for people around the world. And one of the key ones is Russia's continued illegal invasion of Ukraine, Mr. Speaker. On this side of the House, uh, we can affirm clearly that we will stand with Ukraine with everything necessary for as long as necessary. As we saw last week, no Conservative politician can say the same in this House. The Honourable Leader of the Opposition. Actually, we are the only party that has stood with Ukraine, Mr. Speaker. Rather than trying to impose a carbon tax. But, you know, this Prime Minister, I understand what he's doing. He has imposed so much misery here at home, whether by doubling housing costs, forcing people into tent encampments, uh, forcing two million people to go to a food bank. These are the problems here at home at the kitchen table. He is so desperate to talk about anything else that he avoids talking about what's happening in our own country. So will he answer the question? Will he take his tax off our farmers so our people can afford to eat? Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, the Leader of the Opposition full well knows that 97% of fuel emissions uh, in the agricultural sector, in the farming sector, are already exempt from our price on pollution. But he is so desperate to try and score partisan points that he actually refused to stand in support of something that Volodymyr Zelensky asked us for in this House. How is the Leader of the Opposition explaining to Ukrainian Canadians right across the country that he no longer stands with Ukraine on things that they need right now to win this war against Ukraine. Order, please. Then I have deputy. The Honourable Member for Belleuil Chambly. Mr. Speaker, in recent days, we've heard gunshots in Montreal, glass has been shattered, there's been graffiti, and it's all been directed at the Jewish community. We fear that these acts were in some way encouraged by an exception that allows hate speech and incitations to violence under the criminal code, in light of recent events, was will the Prime Minister agree to do away with the religious exception under the criminal code? 
the Right Honourable Prime Minister, I fully agree with my Honourable Colleague that the increase in Islamophobia and anti-Semitism is rising in Canada. There's been more hatred. It's unacceptable. I condemn the attack against the CCJ. We condemn all violence. We will look at the bill put forward by my honorable colleague to see whether indeed that could help fight hate and incitements to violence. It's a complex issue, but we will work constructively to protect Canadians. No, no, have Censorship doesn't get rid of it, it just hides it. I cautiously, I'm cautiously optimistic about that. I hope we'll get somewhere on this, but More the censorship. bill is very brief. It's just about Great. repealing two sections in the criminal code that create exceptions. Oh. They're used to justify and allow and perpetuate hate speech. Will the prime minister agree to move forward? You're not solving the problem just by telling people to shut up. And straightforward bill. The right honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, as I said, all forms of hatred have no place in Canada and should be condemned. The main thing is to unite Canadians and Quebecers, and hate speech is not allowed under the Criminal Code. Calls for genocide, public incitement to hatred are already forbidden. We will take a close look at the proposed legislation put forward by the bloc leader, and we will be there to work together to protect Canadians while respecting the free society we live in. The Honourable Member for Rosemont, La Petite Patrie. Mr. Speaker, thanks to the hard work of the Quebec and Canadian labour movements and the insistence of the NDP, we will have anti-scab legislation. All right. There you go. Now I do have those recommendations from the NCI. Let's take a look. Here we go. I found them. Man, there are a lot of them. Holy smokes. Section 8. The following are recommendations to improve the situation described under each of the separate headings. This goes on and on and on. There is no shortage of recommendations in here. Protection of constitutional rights, Section A, right off the top. Judicial review, reinforce the role of Canadian courts as constitutional guardians by actively engaging in judicial review of government actions, especially those that may infringe upon Canadians' constitutional rights. Right off the top, thank you. Robust assessment. Develop a rigorous and evidence-based assessment process. For cases involving rights violations, ensuring that the burden of proof is not disproportionately placed on individuals courts should critically evaluate government actions. Yes. And it goes on. Access to justice and court shutdowns, timely responses. So a court review, a, re a process to protect the public, to fortify our constitutional rights, 
the standard of review and judicial review applications. Mootness. Yes, well, that was a problem, wasn't it? With the um, court challenge coming from Maxime Bernier and Brian Peckford, the last surviving signatory on the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, their court case rendered moot because the travel mandates had been lifted. So they said, no, we don't need to hear the case now. Anyway, this addresses that issue with regard to legal challenges in the future, judicial appointments versus elections. An independent review panel, they recommend balancing appointments. They say establish an independent panel or inquiry composed of experts, academics, and experienced practitioners to review the judicial appointment process. Evaluate whether reforms, such as introducing elections at certain levels, are necessary. That's fair. So take a look at the way judges are appointed and or elected. The role of chief justices, review all of that. Um, yeah, because a lot of this comes down to legislation, laws, mandates, the way the courts deal with this stuff and the way that the government was able to enabled to do an end run around the Charter of Rights and Freedoms on the Constitution during the pandemic. As I said, I've said many times, Section 1 needs to be removed and or seriously changed. That would address most of the problems that we encountered during the pandemic. The government won't want to give that up, though, because it gives them the ability to basically strip us of our rights. Never should have been in there. And I know it was a topic of serious debate when the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was introduced back in the 80s. Legislation to protect union members, legal aid for union members. So it talks about the labor movement, unions, the way that they dealt with the pandemic. The Constitution, Canada should establish an independent review of its judicial appointment process. The federal and provincial courts should conduct a national inquiry into their response to pandemic measures, including a review of what role did the court play in protecting the rights of individuals? Yeah, I think they got that upside down. The government, yeah, we need protection from the government. They should be protecting us. They should be making sure that our rights are protected. But no, they're really there. They've been there. Uh, they took our rights away. Um, what role should the court play when a government imposes vast rights-violating measures? Should the government have the ability to impose pandemic measures on courts and the judiciary? What level of impedance do the courts have over their own process in implementing publicly recommended or ordered measures? Should guidelines or best practices be adopted for case assignment, particularly in cases that involve alleged violations of charter rights. That's what I keep talking about. There it is, section B, subsection E. And judges in provincial courts should be appointed by provincial governments and not the federal government. This recommendation is subject to review as part of the overall review of the judicial appointment process. That's right. 
split those powers up so that no arm of government is all powerful. Split the powers up. The judicial selection process should involve a review by a panel that involves a wide array of citizens and legal experts with different political views and backgrounds. Recommendations for appointments should be made public. It also says here that Canada should establish a fund to pay for legal services for Canadian citizens who bring cases against the government for a violation of charter rights or who are defending prosecutions that violate charter rights. Further study should be undertaken to determine the structure and principles governing the fund. Some fundamental principles should include the fund is governed, overseen by a board which has equal representation from constitutional scholars, lawyers, government representatives, academics, and citizens. That sounds like a fantastic idea. That way it levels the playing field between ordinary citizens and government itself. It's very, very difficult to fight the government when you don't have any money. You can't initiate and follow through on legal matters or lawsuits if you don't have the resources. So you end up depending on organizations like the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms or fundraisers to put together legal challenges or lawyers working for free. An independent inquiry, it says here, should be conducted into the response of the medical colleges in each province, including a review of what role did the college play in protecting the rights of its members? What role should the college play when a government makes recommendations for a medical practice? Should there be specific limits placed on the powers of the colleges? What regulations can be put in place to assure that the colleges adhere to the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms? Yes. These are all very good. In some cases, just asking for more, you know, more thought on these and more consultation. In other instances, saying this absolutely, you know, some of these things need to be implemented quickly. Talks about informed consent, whistleblower protection, transparency and accountability for politicians, political organizations. On transparency and accountability, it says decisions by political parties, municipalities, and school boards should be transparent. Parties should be required to provide clear reasons for any actions taken against their members. This includes public publicizing party decisions and disciplinary actions. Strengthen party democracy. Encourage internal party democracy by allowing members to openly debate and express dissenting opinions on significant issues, especially during crises like a pandemic. I agree with that, too. You know, in Canadian politics, if you're elected to parliament, you are sort a lot of pressure is placed upon you as a member of parliament to toe the party line. So whatever the party platform is, you're expected to sort of fall into line. And then they have what they call the, 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 uh, the party whip. And when they have votes, it's their job to sort of take that pressure and apply it to the members of parliament and, and get them to vote with the crowd, with, with their own party. 
And if you vote with them, you're rewarded. If you vote against, you risk being kicked out of, kicked right out of the party even. You might end up sitting as an independent if you vote against. But uh, and it doesn't happen, you know, sometimes members of parliament are allowed, permitted to vote against their own party, but not very often. That's why everybody seems to, tends to vote down party lines, because if you don't, there are repercussions. That is, in a way, there are pros and cons, mostly cons, with regard to that. Ultimately, what every member of parliament should be doing is representing the interests of their constituents from their communities, not just the party line or not just supporting what the prime minister is trying to achieve. It's uh, it's just part of a process that probably does, and no, no question about it, it needs to be tweaked adjusted to allow more free votes on the House floor. Education and legislative processes, independent oversight. Consider the establishment of an independent oversight body or commission to monitor and evaluate government actions during emergencies, ensuring that democratic principles are upheld. Protection of opposition rights, yes. Strengthen the rights and protection of opposition parties to allow them to effectively scrutinize government actions, especially during emergencies. This includes timely access to information and the ability to hold the government accountable. Yeah. I mean, that process is there. there, there there's probably some way to massage that, uh, that part of the system, though. The opposition parties, you see... A lot of Canadians think that it's an all-or-nothing proposition. If you elect Trudeau, he just gets to do whatever he wants. That's not really true. The opposition parties are there, and if they're really doing their jobs as members of parliament in opposition, they're not there to undermine the system, per se, but they are there to challenge the government of the day and hold them accountable if they're doing their jobs properly. But clearly that has not really been happening adequately. And what we're seeing here right now is the NDP propping up the liberal government. So you have two, the two, basically the two socialist political parties working together to create an unelected majority in order to ram all of Justin Trudeau's legislative um, Efforts through, and in exchange, Jagmeet Singh, with the NDP, they get a lot of what they want passed as well. They force him to adopt a lot of their policies, which is also why the government has gone so far to the left in Canada since the election of Justin Trudeau. That's why you're seeing so much, such massive spending and... Such massive taxation. Um, pandemic convention. The NCI recommends that Canada register immediate reservation against the pandemic convention 
and the amendments to the international health regulations once they're put forth by the World Health Organization to allow time for proper consideration of the initiatives and their potential impact on Canada. At the same time, Canada should conduct a public inquiry and consultation into the benefits and risks of both its current obligations under the WHO and the proposed pandemic convention and proposed amendments to the international health regulations. Strengthen informed consent, enhance vaccine injury compensation, conduct a comprehensive inquiry, monitor WHO developments closely, protect national sovereignty. Canada should maintain its sovereignty over public health decisions. Absolutely. While international coordination can be valuable, it should not infringe on Canada's ability to tailor its responses to its unique circumstances. Any international agreements should be voluntary and non-binding. 100% in agreement. I am. Balance health and human rights. Now there's one of the key issues that bubbled to the surface during the pandemic. It says Canada should strike a balance between public health measures and human rights. While protecting public health is crucial, measures taken during health emergencies should be lawful, legitimate, necessary, proportional, and temporary. Canada should avoid disproportionately infringing on human rights. That's what I said from the beginning, but everybody was so scared. People freaked out and they were ready. They did. They just, so many people just, they wanted the government to say, screw everybody's rights. Not just here in Canada, but in the United States and around the world. I remember that video with Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he literally came out, and I believe the quote was, F your freedom. <laughs> uh, yeah, Arnold. I'm not listening to him anymore. Um, provide redress for victims. Yes. Engage with civil society. Canada should engage with civil liberties organizations, human rights advocates, medical professionals, and other relevant stakeholders, including the public, to ensure that responses to health crises are well-informed and respectful of human rights. You know, I saw another live cast the other day where they were talking about stakeholders, like anything that uses the word stakeholders is evil or something. It was the most bizarre thing I'd heard in a long time. If you don't know, like... I guess some people don't know what stakeholder means. It means you. It means anybody that has a stake in something. So when they talk about stakeholders coming to the table to participate in a consult consultative process, it just means anybody that has an interest or a stake in something. So they get to come to the table and they get to have a voice in the process. That's all that means. I don't know where the, this person, I'm not going to single them out. But it just, maybe you saw the, the video, but I was like, that's not, that's just fear mongering. Um, stakeholder. Evil. No, it just means everybody that has anything to, that has an interest in something. It means you too, as the public, you have a, a stake in it. You know, if they're going to build a women's shelter and you're a woman, you're a stakeholder. So you might have a voice at the table because you're a woman. 
if they're going to build a an ice rink and you have a hockey team, your hockey team is a stakeholder because you're going to be using the arena. Um, access to education and work online, learning options, job protection. Yeah, job protection. So many people lost their jobs. Wow. These are the things, man, that just like, this is what got me just jacked right up from the very beginning. I mean, it was just, it was ridiculous. It's still ridiculous. It's ridiculous that these things, that we even have to have this inquiry. It's ridiculous that the government hasn't already taken steps to address these things. It's ridiculous that we're even having this conversation. It's just ridiculous. What they did was ridiculous. It didn't work. It was doomed to fail from the beginning. It was a fool's errand trying to <laughs> stamp out the, the thingy that goes through the air. I don't even want to say the word on here lest we get punished. What were they? They... A lot of smart people were doing a lot of stupid thinking. And then as a result, um, a lot of people suffered. Our whole country has suffered. We still haven't recovered. I don't know if we ever will. It did so much damage in in ways that are not even, you know, tan like visible, but you can feel it. You can you you're experiencing it every day. The impact that it had on our kids because of the way it impacted them at school, the relationships that have been destroyed between people who ended up fighting because it was so divisive, all of it driven by fear. And no wonder that this, the thinking on all of this got sloppy. Everybody was injected with a full dose of fear. And they kept injecting that fear into everybody's cerebral cortex 24-7 through social media and conventional media for months, years. They're still doing it. You can't think rationally when you are scared. And people that I thought I knew very, very well, um, I realized I didn't know them as well as I thought because they, they, they were all in. Oh, you got to do this and you got to follow all the rules and stay six feet away from me. And I'm like, oh, my God, where's your mask? But, you know, people coming around. We're, we're seeing people come back to their senses. I've had conversations with people who were petrified during the pandemic. And now they realize how ludicrous a lot of this stuff was. All of it, really. I mean, did they get anything right? No, I don't think so, man. I really don't think the government got any of this right. Uh, except, of course, that they... The, 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 the worst part of the whole thing... Well, aside from the authoritarian lockdowns and people losing their jobs and all those authoritarian measures... The worst part that you, is that you could see governments, not just here in Canada, but in the United States and, and in other countries as well, in the West, using 
the pandemic as a vehicle for political change to push a more more authoritarianism and they used it didn't they yes they did and the one of the most disgusting things through the whole damn thing was the way that Justin Trudeau used the pandemic as a wedge issue to divide Canadians, to generate actual hate, hatred between people in order to score political points and get people to vote for him using fear, fear of the, 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 the thing that you, makes you sick. And then making people who he indoctrinated into his way of thinking, making them fearful of anybody they didn't get the thingy in the arm. As though they were going to contaminate you, like they had leprosy or something. It was absolutely disgusting. Worst prime minister in Canadian history, probably will always be the worst prime minister in history. How could anyone be worse than that? I mean, I can only think of one. <laughs> the only, no, no. It's, it, I don't know. It, is it possible for anyone to be worse? I can't think of it offhand. I mean, short of having some mass murderer running out into the streets with, you know, I, I don't know, just mowing people down, annihilating, like, short of that, I, I don't know. Um, and I, that, you know, I can't see that happening here, but, oh my God. But then again, you know, it, 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 the hatred, the anger is so, it re has reached such a fever pitch. We could actually, you know, People talking about, you know, the country so divided that it could erupt into that kind of, we're seeing violence on the streets right now, aren't we? Because he can't, he just, he doesn't have the leadership abilities to bring people together. He says, we have to unite. He said that in the House of Commons today. Can he unite anybody? Has he united anybody? No. Divide, 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 divide identity politics. You're in this group. You're in that group. When you're in this group down here, oh, you better be afraid of those people. And that's the that's the trick that he's been using on the immigration all the way along, too, with immigration. He brings people in, and then he says to them, you know, and I've seen him do it in his speeches. He says, you know, we're, and I'm paraphrasing, but basically the strategy is we're your friends. We're here to support you. But you see all those domestic terrorists over there? <laughs> those are the those are the people. You got to watch out for them. But you see, you better vote for, for us, Libs, because we'll protect you from all them terrible folks over there. They don't like you. They're a bunch of racists. That's what he does. That's what he's, he, he's done it. I've watched him do it in his speeches countless times using very carefully crafted language, twisting his words around. That's what Justin Trudeau does. And it has worked for him, but it's wearing thin. I think people are starting to catch on, although with all of this oh crap out of the Middle East, like 
Now people are divided again. It's like one thing after another. They just, they grab these wedge issues and they drive them in, don't they? So the people are divided. It's absolutely disgusting. So the report goes on and calls for independent oversight. They want to establish an ombudsman or commission, establish an independent body like an ombudsman or commission to investigate cases of coercion and violations of individual rights related to vaccination, provide a channel for individuals to report coercion and seek redress. Yes. Thank you. Great idea. Another one. It just goes on. It just keeps getting better. Avoid political exploitation, ethical political discourse, rebuild trust. <laughs> yeah, but cow, we need, well, elect a better government. A public apology, it's calling for right here. Governments should issue public apologies to individuals who felt coerced into vaccination and acknowledge the harms caused by these coercive measures. Rebuilding trust should be a priority. I agree. I've said that here, especially with our policing. We need to get our policing back to the, uh, you know, the approach that they used to have, which was community policing, but it's not there anymore. That whole strategy, it seems, has been discarded in favor of this new form of policing, which is based on identity politics, essentially, and wokeism. It really is. The approach is is misguided um, because it's not even-handed. Other emergency planning and plan execution, emergency measures organizations must be in charge of planning, implementation, and recovery from any and all emergencies. You know what? All these government bodies already had emergency preparedness plans in place to deal with exactly this kind of incident. Um, and they, they left either left them on the shelves, the plans, or they threw them in the, in the trash can as soon as the emergency, the emergency hit because they didn't follow those plans anywhere. Instead, they followed the China model, which was lock everybody down, mask everybody up, Anybody that doesn't comply, punish them. Public health officials, it says here, should never be put in charge of emergency response. Yeah, they should be a critical component of the planning, but should never be in charge with running a response. I agree. Because they are singular in focus. They don't look at the broader picture and they forget that there is more to life than being afraid of dying. Even as bad as things seemed to get, or as bad as they wanted us to view things, we needed to live. We always need to live. So we need to find a way to live through these things and deal with these things. But our society has become so soft. You know, since World War II, here in the West, it's like we sort of overcame all of the major 
obstacles to living, you know? It's like pioneer days, they were tough. <laughs> you had to go out and clear the land, chop the trees down. You had an ox and a, or a horse, and you'd be out plowing the fields and working your fingers to the bone, and there was no penicillin, and you were lucky if you lived past 40. Now, you've got cars and ambulances and air conditioning and electricity and We went through, you know, the drive-in movie phase of things. Life's been, you know, in comparatively is pretty easy. And then something like this comes along, and then our society became has become so secular that people, I think, because they've lost touch with faith, religion, and to me, religion is a form of philosophy. It teaches us about the importance of life, how to live life. It teaches us morals and ethics, but you detach or you remove that from society and people lose their moral compass. They lose sight of what is truly important in life. And then something like this comes along and they really haven't grappled or thought even about death and how they're going to deal with death. And because they haven't been giving it that kind of serious thought, they're afraid of it. And if you haven't really explored that issue with yourself, when presented with the threat of death, this truly existential threat on a personal level, the government scares the living crap out of you, and you don't know how to respond. And so you ask for the punishment. What wouldn't you do if you haven't come to terms with the possibility of your own demise to save yourself? The answer is you'd let the government do anything it wants in order to protect you. And that's what we ended up with. It says here, elected officials must remain in charge of all emergency measures. Yeah, I mean, that's really normally the approach that things are, you know, take. And it starts at the local level and should be going up, not the other way around, not the top down, unless you're dealing with, I guess, you know, the threat of a foreign invasion, in which case a declaration of war is maybe made. But, you know, if you have a flood in your town, the, the mayor declares an emergency and then it goes up the food chain from there and you get uh, local officials and your local police out and you, you, you it starts up that way that's the way these things should should have been dealt with and it but it was coming the other way it was coming from the top down and these measures these lockdowns all of that stuff the the the, the instructions started at the top from senior levels of government and came down into municipalities. It, it was that in itself was a quite unusual in my view. Didn't work really well. Immediate development of a judicial panel development and implement a constitutional and international law education course for all judiciary positions across Canada. The intent is to educate judges and crown attorneys as to their responsibilities under the Constitution and international treaties to which Canada is a signatory nation. 
carry out immediate judicial reviews of all pandemic-related court cases that were denied on the basis of mootness or judicial notice. Absolutely. Revisit them. Give them their due... Give them their due process. Policing. Independent judicial investigations. Conduct independent and transparent judicial investigations into allegations of illegal activities by law enforcement officers during the pandemic, ensuring accountability and adherence to the rule of law. This investigation must have the power to enforce subpoenas, to obtain witness testimony, and defend critical documents. Yep. This is all very reasonable stuff. This is extremely well thought out. This is, honestly, folks, in my opinion, fantastic stuff. Review and revise policing protocols. Collaborate with law enforcement agencies to review and revise their protocols and guidelines for enforcement, enforcing government mandates with a focus on respecting individual rights and freedoms while safeguarding public health. Thank you. Public awareness campaigns to educate citizens about their rights and responsibilities during health emergencies, promoting dialogue, yes, and cooperation, yes, between the police and the community, yes. Public education, not public punishment. Okay, that's the way it works. That's good public health policy. Not fear. Community policing initiative. Thank you. Thank you. There it is, right there. Subsection E. Community policing initiatives. Promote community police. I, I did I not talk about that, what, five, ten minutes ago? Promote community policing initiatives that foster positive relationships between law enforcement agencies and the communities they serve, enhancing trust and cooperation. Please, can we please go back to that? It works. It worked. It worked. You get the cops into your communities. They get to know the people on their beats. They get out of their cruisers. They spend some time walking around the communities. They, they meet with people. They meet with stakeholders, community groups, public service organizations. They become involved in their communities. They live in their communities and it becomes community-based policing. Clear accountability mechanisms. Establish clear mechanisms for holding law enforcement agencies accountable for their actions during the pandemic, ensuring transparency and fairness in the disciplinary process. I cannot, for the life of me, get out of my head. The day that I was in the park downtown with a whole crowd of people for speeches outside, and what was hovering over us? A drone. A police drone. They were video, video recording everyone from their eye in the sky, as though everybody in the park, all the people from the community, were now suddenly suspects in some investigation into who went to the park that day. It was terrible, but you know, the cops, they get into a mindset too, right? Like they're afraid and then they've got this job to do and oh my God, and pressure is put on them by half the community to get out there and arrest all those people who didn't get the thing in the arm. Because they're going to kill us all. Oh, it was terrible. It was a terrible situation. 
God help us all. And I, I don't know if we've actually learned anything. Even with all these recommendations, our, our communities are still so divided. I mean, people mostly have put it in the back of their minds. And so when I'm out in the community, um, you know, people on that other side, it's just not spoken about. So people are getting along. But I don't know that the attitude has changed at all among people. I think given the same set of circumstances, if this happens again, I think you'll, you would see exactly the same response. I don't think our officials have learned anything. And I think the people who are uh, allowed themselves to be scared into submission the last time well, would turn around and respond in exactly the same way again. And if it's worse the next time, <laughs> I think the response would end up being worse. I'd like to think that we've we've learned and would, would come out of it stronger, better, do it different, but I don't think so. Right here, promote human rights education and awareness among citizens, government officials, and security forces. Encourage a culture of respect for human rights, tolerance, and nonviolence through educational programs, public campaigns and training initiatives. Yes. It is not an option, it says here, to take a business as usual posture and simply carry on as if nothing happened. Institutions must recognize and publicly admit their culpability in what was perpetrated on Canadians. And if appropriate, must face criminal and civil penalties for their actions. Yes, sir. Transparency and accountability information related to the institution's actions during the COVID-19 pandemic must be made publicly available, creating a culture of transparency and accountability within public institutions. Yes. Ensure that decision-making processes are open and accessible to the public and that the actions and performance of public officials are subject to scrutiny. Uh-huh. Because why? Because all these decisions were just made in a political vacuum. As I say, it came from up top. The marching orders came down the food chain and the system just fell into place and went into action. And very, very few people, except for you know some members of the public, but people within the, the chain of command through our institutions, they just all fell into line. They did as they were told. There needs to be a mechanism, I guess, and I'm, I'm sure it's addressed in here somewhere, to allow people to challenge and question when something like this happens without fear of being fired or excommunicated. Ensure that decision-making processes are open and accessible to the public and that the actions and performance of public officials are subject to scrutiny. In other words, go ahead, make your decisions but open the process up so we can see what you're thinking, why you're thinking it, how it's happening. Establish mechanisms for oversight, such as independent audits or ombudsman offices to hold institutions accountable for their actions. Ethical conduct. Promote and enforce high ethical standards within public institutions. 
implement robust codes of conduct that govern the behavior and decisions of public officials and employees. Provide ethics training to ensure that individuals understand their responsibilities and the expectations placed upon them. Effective governance, enhance the professionalism and expertise of public servants through training and development programs. That would be nice. Yeah, get them some re-education. Uh, public engagement, communication and information dissemination. Establish clear and consistent communication channels to keep the public informed about the work and activities of public institutions. Yeah, we were just basically told what to do. There wasn't really any consultation back and forth. I mean, during an emergency, you don't have a lot of time maybe for a lot of back and forth, but there needs to be still a mechanism in place where even after certain steps are taken, there needs to be a, a, an immediate mechanism for review there to see if what we're doing, not just is, 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 is correct or if it needs to be adjusted. And it needs to happen like immediately. So yeah, implement your emergency measures, but then there should be a, an immediate review process implemented. And that's me speaking, not the report. So if they lock everybody down on Tuesday, on Wednesday, we better be having some public consultations and back and forth dialogue on whether it's working, whether it should continue, whether it's justified, whether it's a violation of our constitutional rights, and so on. It says here, learn from mistakes, acknowledge and learn from past mistakes or failures. Ha <laughs> ha, yeah, good luck. Publicly address any instances of wrongdoing or misconduct and take corrective actions, demonstrate a commitment to learning, improvement, and prevention of similar issues in the future. Long-term vision and consistency. Develop and communicate a clear long-term vision for the institution's role and purpose, demonstrate consistency in actions and decision-making, avoiding unnecessary reversals or abrupt changes. Consistency helps build trust by showing that institutions are reliable, accountable, and predictable, and we have lost so much trust in our institutions. Again, I don't know if we will ever be able to recover from it. And they talk about the impact that it had on the military. We've talked to Veterans for Freedom about that with their lawyer. He says here an apology should be issued for implementing the vaccine mandate. Yeah. Schools, avoid prolonged school closures, prioritize in-person learning, yes. Data-informed decision-making, yes. Support vulnerable populations, enhance mental health services, yes. Prioritize social and emotional learning. There's so much mental illness out there now as a result of the pandemic that has just been exacerbated by the pandemic. People who are vulnerable, you know, with mental illnesses before, it's just been made so much worse. Prioritize social and emotional learning. Maintain transparent communication. Plan for crisis scenarios. Learn from past mistakes. And it goes on. And look, this is fantastic stuff. There's so much in here. This is 
a treasure chest of recommendations for our public officials, both our politicians and those in the bureaucracies. It's fantastic stuff. This is really, really well thought out. Well written. On point. Point after point after point after point. Right on point. And it just goes on and on and on. It is fantastic. All right. I'm going to take a quick break because my throat is getting parched. Greetings, brave mavericks. Our quest for truth continues. We go beyond fake news. Together we expose propaganda. Together we pull others out of rabbit holes. We are maverick thinkers. We are all unique individuals, individuals, defenders of individual rights and freedoms. Credible, trusted, grounded in reality. Maverick News, Maverick News. Defending free speech, free speech, speech. Donate at freedomreporters.com. Do it now. Tomorrow. Maybe too late. Too late. Too late. Too late. Maverick News. The world is watching. You know, I, uh, I we have other news to cover tonight, but this is, I'm so glad I was able to isolate the recommendations here because this stuff is so good. It's so powerful that uh, I'm just going to, I'm going to power through a little bit more of this stuff because it deserves to be highlighted, especially knowing and having lived through with all of you, one of the darkest, maybe the darkest period in our history. And all of the stuff in here helps shine a light on a path forward. It says remedy dis- discriminatory conduct. Going forward, there must be a clear evidence-based rationale for locking down citizens and society. And subsequently, when the Emergencies Act is revoked, there must be ample opportunities for redress, public conversations, and debate in the public square that will counter future restrictions on the citizenry. Criminal Code Section 176 must be retained. Every individual has an inherent right to end-of-life spiritual and or pastoral care or God at bedside services that align with their specific faith. Therefore, all publicly funded institutions, including hospitals and long-term care facilities, must comply Yes, comply with respecting people's rights. We saw that thrown right out of the window where people were not even allowed to say goodbye to loved ones. People choose to engage in that way with their loved ones. They should be 
allowed to do that. Courts must accept deeply held beliefs for religious convictions and respect that not every citizen, when writing an affidavit to support their views, is familiar with conveying the breadth and depth of their convictions in a matter that would overwhelmingly influence the court. Right. The presumption of innocence must be respected. I don't even need to get into that, but it's just so obvious. Bail conditions must be reasonable and fair. Separation of courts. Separation of courts from the public service. Yes. Churches and citizens are encouraged to create a public policy watch for any legislation that potentially negates the rights and freedoms of faith groups. The attempt to silence religious speech over the last three years should not go unnoticed. That, in my mind, when all of that was really at its peak, that, to me, smacked of politics, political ideology being overlaid there was a larger political objective there, in my opinion. A political, ideological objective that is still unfolding even as we speak. And they talk about the financial impacts, the impact it had on the economy, impact of mandates on Canadian citizens, yeah. Says your laws need to be strengthened to specifically prohibit the mandating of medical procedures and the exposure of private health information. There are current laws in place, but somehow these laws did not protect Canadians. Canada must affirm its adherence to international law and human rights and invite an investigation on the actions of the government according to these treaties. Talks about people losing their jobs, what should be done. Healthcare access and outreach. This just goes on. It is so darn good. This is way better than I thought it would be. I thought it would be good, but I didn't think it was going to be this good. If our public officials do not pay attention to this, they are just, and they probably won't because they are so obstinate and afraid. And, you know, I don't really see anything partisan in here at all. And it goes on. And it all goes on about the media. <laughs> yeah, the media. Specifically the CBC, a whole section with the CBC in here. I don't even need to tell you. You all saw. You all heard. You all absorbed. Natural immunity and early treatments rebuffed. Yep. Future approvals of new pharmaceuticals, looking at the procedures there. Yes. Yeah, getting into all of the, you know, the safety issues surrounding the medications. Informed consent, informed consent, informed consent.
Yep. And here are the conclusions. Anyone who participated in the hearings or watched even a small fraction of the more than 300 plus recorded testimonials will have been changed forever. Many of the testimonies were heartbreaking, shocking, and often terrifying. Over the 24 days of hearings, witnesses provided an overall sense of how Canada has been transformed by the actions of all levels of government to address the pandemic. The transformation from what was once considered unthinkable, example, sweeping restrictions of charter rights, to the acceptance of draconian government lockdowns within a span of just three years is indeed a remarkable phenomenon. The testimonies objectively demonstrate that an unprecedented attack has been carried out on the citizens of Canada and that not since World War II have so many Canadian lives been lost due to a single aggressive attack on its peoples. It is important to appreciate that the this statement is based on sworn testimony of events and experiences described by the witnesses, and that these testimonies, as incredible as they are, do not fully capture the full breadth of the events that took place over the past three years. This, of course, is what I was reading at the beginning, and appropriate since this is really the wrap-up of it here at the end. And uh, in summary, the normalcy of once unthinkable draconian government lockdowns within a relatively short period can be attributed to a focused campaign of propaganda and false information produced by government and their partners in media and big business to promote, and I don't want to say it, lest we get in trouble, as a terrifying thing. They used fear, it says right here, overwhelming the healthcare system to persuade the public to accept their measures. Oh, my goodness. And it says right here, accountability for these alleged crimes must be rendered. You can read the entire thing on the NCI website. And I encourage you to do just that. And you can assess for yourself. You can assess for yourself. Great, great stuff. Great work. I hope. I hope the people with the power. Take the time to pay attention. We need it. All of those things are great recommendations. The NCI has already made a big difference. Giving a voice to the voiceless and now giving us a roadmap to the future. If we choose to follow it. Hello, world. Are you awake? Uniting humankind by liberating millions of minds at a time. Maverick News. The world is watching.
the New World Order. Government Overreach The Great Reset Mainstream Media Lies Now more than ever, independent voices are needed. Donate now, at FreedomReporters.com That's FreedomReporters.com Maverick News The Antivirus Program For Your Mind are back and man i gotta tell you i i do find some hope in that nci report and those recommendations and i am going to reach out to sean buckley and see if we can get him back on the program because that is really really powerful really powerful stuff and i know that their work is ongoing um they're going to do more and we need to support that and cover it and give them the attention that they deserve. I am amazed that this did not receive uh, more media attention today. I like, I not seeing anything on it, like really nothing. And this is without a doubt in my, in my, my opinion, that NCI report in Canada, top story of the day. And just not getting any coverage. I don't get it. Well, I do get it. <sighs> terrible. Terrible, terrible, terrible. We have other news to cover here tonight, though. We've kind of gone through that. And we'll get Sean on the uh, on the program again to talk about this stuff. But let's move on and discuss some, uh, some other things here this evening. Um, we have... <laughs> If my computer will cooperate, everything is kind of freezing up again here. Come on. A new digital services tax that the government wants to impose. Let me see if I can get it back up. Computer, internet, I don't think it's working well. Give it a minute. It'll come back online. I hope that you're, I'm still broadcasting. Are you guys still able to see me? We're having some internet glitching again here tonight. I think we've got it. Nope. 
Interesting. Why is the computer frozen up? Let me see if I can get it open in another tab. Here we go. So yeah, the uh, the federal government in Canada wants to impose a new digital services tax. What do they want to do here? Let's, uh, here we go. So they've set the stage for this new tax. And uh, it will pave the way for the implementation of this new system. Uh, they don't have a date yet, apparently. Um for the full implementation and when it will come into effect. But they talked about this back in 2020, saying that they want to bring in this DST on big tech companies and the tax would apply to revenues of large firms that provide digital services like um, social media, online advertising, and e-commerce services. So if you buy anything on Amazon, if you buy anything online, there would be a, a digital services tax imposed. Social media, there would be taxation on social media advertising, I guess. That, of course, would be passed on to you and me as consumers. By the big companies that are charged these taxes, and you would end up paying, I guess, a digital services tax as well if you engage in any kind of online transactions. So businesses were told back in 2020, I guess, that Canada would not impose the DST before 2024, January, coming up. We're only a little over a month away, although... When that tax was levied, it would impact revenues as of January 1st, 2022, which means that they uh, they might actually start charging these taxes retroactively, which I that seems bizarre. So there were some um, documents filed back in August kind of outlining what this tax might look like. It looks like it would be a 3% tax imposed on companies that have total revenue of more than 750 million euros or about $1.1 billion Canadian. And this is because they're talking about, I guess, doing this on an international scale to address cross-border issues and competition issues given that the internet is a global thing right but even if other companies don't proceed with a digital services tax canada's uh, finance minister christian freeland says that uh they the canadian government may act on its own anyway she says we have also always said uh, that if this international treaty on the dst did not come into force at the end of this year, then Canada would have no choice but to introduce our own digital services tax. Of course they will. Because why? Because Trudeau loves to do that. And so does she. 
They're all about big spending and big taxes. That's what they do. So finance officials in Canada are saying that, well, the Ways and Means motion introduced in the House of Commons outlining the DST and other measures from the fall economic statement of budget does not contain an implementation date. Cabinet can set a date when it sees fit, providing the legislation is in place. They're going to do this. You can, and I hate to say it, but you can bet your bottom dollar. <laughs> oh, my. They just aren't happy unless they're taxing you to death. Yep. New technology, information age, an information-based economy, and they need to tax it because they need their revenue. Because we must keep those politicians, those big spending, highfalutin, high-flying, jet-setting libs, got to keep them living in the lifestyle that they have become accustomed to. Keep the money a-flowing. Tax, tax, tax. And then tax some more. Exile. The Knights of Malta. Maverick News. Join us. The world is watching. I'm back. And if we exile those Knights of Malta, maybe all our problems would be solved. And uh, those T-shirts, the exiled Knights of Malta T-shirts, I'll show you the design. This, it's not going to be exactly this design. It was altered a little bit today, but they're in and getting made, the shirts are being made now. We're going to have Exile, the Knights of Malta t-shirts coming your way very shortly. I don't know how long it's going to take our friend over there at the shop to do them. I get them made locally. There it is right over my face. It's going to look something like that. The, the curly Q stuff is going to be smaller just around the Exile thing. We're going to be very pretty. I think you're going to like it. And we showed you the Knights of Malta at the United Nations the other day um, addressing the UN. It's a real thing, man. And we got to deal with it. They're very woke. Very woke. And they are among us. So we must peacefully exile them. Oh, my. And you know, all those... Um, wildfires over the summer. I kept saying, you know, like, we had to be careful about what we were hearing on both sides of the issue. Because people were, some people are like, it's the government, it's the government, and they're using, you know, like, whatever to, to, to burn people out of their, whatever. And then on the other side, 
you know, the government's telling us it's climate change. I guess the trees are just spontaneously combusting. No. I said, you know, the stats show that a certain percentage, over half of them are man-made because of a variety of reasons historically. And while we had like an unprecedented number over the summer, um, I said, you know, we, we really should be waiting for as many facts as possible before jumping to conclusions on what's really going on. And this is a court case that very few people are really aware of. But this guy here, that guy, he's been charged with setting a bunch of forest fires in Northern Quebec. And forgive me if I'm getting some of these names, places wrong. Chibougamau, north of Montreal. And um, his name is Brian Paré, Paré, P-A-R-E, 37 years old. He was charged months ago, back in September, or maybe even before that. Um, anyway, he is accused, and this is, has not been proven in court, but he's accused of setting a bunch of forest fires, wildfires, between May 31st and July 8th, and right up even into September, possibly. Um, he said he's, he's accused of setting a fishing cabin on fire that then resulted in a wild fire in that area. It just goes on and on. Um, a lot of people had to, apparently, as a result of these fires that were set, had to leave their homes. Police conducted a major investigation in order to apprehend him. The major crimes unit was involved in this in Quebec. And, uh, you know, it's it, the government sat there and talked about climate change, climate change, climate change. It's not exactly clear what this guy's motives might have been. I did look him up on Facebook. And he was posting all kinds of stuff about forest fires. He, on his Facebook page, this guy was blaming, of course, all of the forest fires on government. Here it is here. I'll bring it up for you. So this guy, and again, this has not been proven in court, but he's accused of setting what I think at least six or seven. Then they laid in an, an additional 11 charges back in September against him. This is still before the courts it says this is happening in Canada. Pulls when I say climate change doesn't exist, but being invented and manufactured by our government and their elite of the United Nations World Economic Forum and the OMS for their 2030 New World Order tabernacle. Okay. So a lot of people talk like that. This gentleman posting all this stuff about basically 
all kinds of stuff about these fires. Only to now, it appears, well, I guess they have the evidence on this guy, so they're going to present it in court, and we'll see. We will see. But I was saying all along that, you know, I think people with political agendas, whether they're environmental activists or whatever, they have real incentives to do this kind of thing. And uh, I'm just not buying the the narrative from the government side or the other side, honestly. Um, I think there are real explanations for a lot of this stuff, that being potentially one of them. We need to get down to real facts because what happened during this past summer, not acceptable. We can't let that happen again come next year. That's, that's the worst I've ever seen it, man. And uh, we just can't have that happening. We need better forestry management, mitigate the risk. We need better surveillance, security. We need satellite imagery to keep tabs on what's going on, on all the forested areas. We need surveillance to see if, you know, how this stuff is being, what, what the real, the real problems are. It's not enough for the politicians to just, just sit there and say, it's climate change, going to have to tax you. That's not the truth. I don't think that's the truth at all. And if people are engaging in acts of arson, we need to have better methods to prevent that, to catch them or whatever. I don't know. I know that, um, you know, security agencies in Canada and the United, United States have looked at that as a, a real issue for decades, but nothing really of substance has ever been done to protect our, our forests from, honestly, acts of nefariousness or even, I would potentially say, terrorism. Anybody doing that kind of stuff, man, they're putting people's lives in danger and livelihoods and homes and if anybody's out there setting fires, they definitely need to be held accountable. Another story for you on the um, Ontario education system. Let me just bring this up here in just a moment. I need just a moment to cue this. Here we go. Okay. In Ontario, at the grade 10 level, they're going to start teaching um, a new, what do they call them? There's going to be a whole new course. Not a course, but it'll be uh, embedded within a course about the uh, Holodomor, the great famine in Ukraine back in the 1930s. Let me just bring up this for you. I'll let them explain. And here we go. I want everyone here to understand the leadership role you personally played in making sure that the children who came from Ukraine could learn safely and get settled quickly into Ontario's school system. In fact, the very next day after Russia invaded, you called me to ask me what you could do as minister. So thank you for that. Not only to support our students here who would of course have some trauma 
and mental health needs, but also to assure us that any children who came to seek safe refuge here in Ontario would be welcomed in our school. And they did come. To our school alone, we have welcomed over 200 students from Ukraine, almost doubling our school population in a year. This presents many challenges, but also opportunities. I want to thank you, Minister Lecce, Premier Ford, MPP Surma, for supporting us at the provincial level. I want to thank our board, our parish, and our community for supporting us with programming and financial support. But really, I want to highlight our extraordinary teachers and staff who continue today to go above and beyond to support the needs of our new students, but also to support the continued needs of our existing students who just coming out of COVID were thrown yet another curveball. I could never have imagined the ways in which our teachers and staff have stepped up and continue to step up on a daily basis. So allow me to publicly say thank you. Every day my heart is overwhelmed with gratitude for our amazing, generous teachers and staff. Hang on, let me just... Hang on here. here St. Demetrius is known for its large Eastern Rite Ukrainian student population. The school community has been through devastating trauma over the last two years as the war rages on back home in Ukraine. The difficulties have only made our community stronger and more resilient. We will never give up and we will never give in. Every time I visit this amazing school and speak to staff, students, clergy, and families, I am reminded of the strength and resilience of the Ukrainian community. Principal Hordienko and her team have created a welcoming learning environment where our TCDSB students, both new and existing, understand that they belong, that they are safe, and they are always accepted. Continuing to recognize the Holodomor helps to ensure that the tragic Stalinist Soviet persecution and genocide of Ukrainians will never be forgotten. I'd now like to welcome a great friend of this community, a great supporter of this community, the Honorable Minister of Education, Stephen Lecce. Well, thank you so much, uh, Marcus. I appreciate the welcome. I want to give uh, a warm shout out uh, to my parliamentary colleagues, Natalia Kusindova-Bashi, who's with us, as well as Christine Hogarth. Uh, all of us are so committed to the cause of remembrance. And I want to thank our amazing principal here at St. Demetrius, Lily. Thank you for not just your leadership at this, at this school, but your leadership in the country on behalf of free people, the Ukrainian families, and the kids who have come to this community, come to this school with open arms. And this reminds me of why I'm proud to be a Canadian. The fact that people facing some of the greatest difficulty in war and division can seek refuge in this amazing country and that we have staff who went above and beyond every single day. I've been here many times. Uh, I know this library very well. Um, and having seen these kids in the first days upon their uh, arrival to Canada fleeing war, the darkness and despair, the sense of sadness that often their fathers or, or some of their parents may have been back home in the fight for freedom. To see these kids smile again, to see them have hope, 
have love, to have safety and freedom is honestly, it is, it is our why as parliamentarians. It's to give that type of opportunity and dignity to these kids. So thank you for all that you do, for your teachers, your staff, the parents, the volunteers. This is a beautiful community and I'm very proud to be a part of it today. And of course, thank you to all the guests, Consul General, to the amazing community leaders. This is the best of Canada-Ukrainian community in one room today. Uh, wonderful people who have dedicated their lives to the advancement of our values of democracy and freedom. And we're here on the 90th anniversary of the Hall de Moore, and we pay tribute to the millions of people who died by starvation due to the hands of an extreme, brutal ideology of communism under the administration of dictator Joseph Stalin. This terror famine against the Ukrainian people was an act of genocide, and it is our duty as Canadians to ensure we remember it. And as our principal said, I'm not sure and I would agree that many non-Ukrainians truly understand the scale of barbarity that took place against Ukrainian people, free people, children, innocent lives that simply wanted to carry on with the sense of opportunity that we have in this country. It was a deliberate act caused by the brutal collectivization of private farms and the extreme Marxist-Leninist ideology of Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin. And we know, we know that millions of people, seven million people perished at the hands of extremism, of communism, because the world was ill-prepared to act. They, we must learn, I think, today that we cannot be bystanders when we see evil take place. We cannot allow this type of destruction to human dignity. And we have an obligation as citizens of the world, and yes, as citizens of this country, to stand up, to speak up, and to denounce this form of evil that truly took place then and carries on today in the ongoing illegal war in Ukraine by the current dictator of Russia, Vladimir Putin. And so, thankfully, this once, quote, mighty evil empire collapsed over 30 years ago, and we know that Marxist-Leninism, communism, has been discarded and discredited throughout the world. But today, we have an obligation to stand up for our values. As Canadians, the values that unite us for freedom, for democracy, for human rights and human dignity for every single person. That is the moral obligation we have as free people living in the best country on earth. And so to stand up for our values in the denouncement of barbarity, to stand up for democracy and to educate young people on the perils of communism and extreme ideology that undermines the human dignity of every single person. Today, I am very proud to announce that Ontario will mandate for the first time in our country's history, mandatory learning on the Hall de Moore within Ontario's curriculum so that all kids learn from history to never be bystanders in the face of evil. We will educate we will educate young people on the perils of communism and the extreme ideology that has plagued so many people then and still today. And we will educate young people about the civic duty as Canadians, as we just learned on the amazing Hall de Moore bus of disinformation and misinformation, the propaganda that was advanced then and now by the evil empire. 
This is learning that will safeguard our democracy. It will ensure we remain a free society. And learning about the Holodomor is an, an amazing opportunity for young people to appreciate that this was 90 years ago. And in the room today, we have Holodomor survivors. And so we owe it to them in the torture of remembrance that in you, the young people who are with us today, that the, their memories, their stories will carry on in your hearts, in our minds. And I have a great sense of optimism what is possible through education. It is the greatest weapon against hate. And as I said on Saturday at the Holodomor Memorial, there are no bullet. No missile, no invasion will ever pierce the fighting spirit of the Ukrainian people. Okay, so enough of that. And what's going on with this story? Let me just check this out. Porn star Ron Jeremy. His rape case is going to end apparently with him being released to a private residence. So the people, the women that he is, that have accused him are reacting with rage. He was accused, indicted on more than 30 counts of sexual assault back in 2021. So this is all just coming out, this new information now, tonight. The courts declared him mentally incompetent back in January because of symptoms related to severe dementia. So that's quite a twist. That's quite a twist in that. I wondered where they were at with that case, and now we know. Wow. So there's that tonight. And... What else do we have going on? We have how about I take a quick break? Just one more, and I'll get uh, I'll get a string of these other stories ready to go. We've got dogs attacking cars. You're gonna want to see that.
And I'm back. I'm back, back, back. Oh, there's this new footage, too, out of um, J6, the J6 incident. And it ain't what the Democrats want you to see. Um, this shows a different, you know, it's like I've said, there's, there's kind of sometimes more than one truth. This is another truth within a truth within the incident. This shows Trump supporters who appear to be protecting police during the J6 incident. Check this out. There's a lot of new footage that's going to be coming out that's going to be released, and this is just some of it. Here we go. He's telling these guys to stop. See? Yeah, look, they're forming a circle around the cops to protect the cops. Yeah, you can clearly see that those Trump supporters, they're like, they're protecting the cops. The video is not lying. Maxime Bernier tonight on X. He's been looking into something I've started to take a look at just in the last few days, but maybe I don't need to go much further because he's he's, he's getting to the bottom of it right here. I've been looking at deaths, total deaths, and he's drilled down a little bit further. And he tonight has this on X saying that newly released StatsCan data shows that the number of COVID-19 deaths increased from 14,466 in 2021 to 19,716 in 2022, the highest number of such deaths recorded since the beginning of the pandemic. And he says, so more people died from COVID after most had been, you know, the thingy and the thingy. Isn't that interesting, he says. The numbers are the numbers. That's not disinformation. That's just straight up numbers from the Canadian government. And I, 
it's it, I just in the last few days I'd started to look at those kinds of stats. And uh, because I was I was thinking, you know, now would be the time when that information will will start to become available and you'll be able to see you'll be able to, to extract empirical evidence to support truth. <laughs> What's the truth? The numbers don't lie. I mean, you can manipulate stats to kind of say what you want want them to say, but you can't really. I mean, unless they're saying that it's how they categorize things, I guess, but the numbers are the numbers and the government's going to skew the numbers to make themselves look good if they can. And if that's the end result, and those I confirmed, you know, those, those are the numbers. You can go to the government website. So that's an interesting twist on a story as well, isn't it? Sure is. Now, Doggies, eating cars, car-eating dogs. I mean, we've all heard of Cujo, right? How about Carjo? Oh, oh, these are wild dogs. At a car dealership down in Texas, they've been having problems. The the cars sit on this on this car dealer's lot, and then they've been coming in every once in a while. And cars are like ripped apart and they couldn't figure out what was going on. So they, they, they looked at the security camera footage and this has been happening over and over again. And the damage estimates I've read anywhere from uh, as much as $350,000 now to the cars in this car dealer's lot. And I'm going to share this with you now. Um, I, I've never seen anything quite like it. These, these wild dogs, I mean, no tools, just teeth. And they're ripping these cars apart. Check this out. This is crazy town. Look at this. It looks like a scene from a Stephen King novel. Dogs tearing apart vehicles at a dealership in Northwest Harris County and leaving behind hundreds of thousands of dollars in damage. It's a story you will only see here on ABC 13. And a story that will make you shake your head. Now, ABC 13, Shannon Ryan joining us live right now from the dealership G Motors off of Cypress Creek Parkway. And Shannon, the big question here, certainly on my mind, why are the dogs doing this potentially? Yeah, well, this is something that has happened several times and employees are still trying to figure out where these dogs are even coming from. But footage of that first incident does show a cat, which is what they now think they may be after. Cars on this Northwest Harris County dealership's lot torn apart. Bumpers, fenders gone, scratches and bite marks left behind. That's how we can say this is, might be a wolf. Employees of G Motors were shocked to play surveillance footage back and find its distant cousin responsible, the common canine. You never think that a, a dog has this, this kind of power to tear off a car like that. Videos show just two dogs destroyed at least five cars in three separate overnight incidents this month. This Look at that. Taking care of ASAP. Sales manager Gabby Ficori says his employees are terrified. Nobody wants to leave their cars anymore. They want to make sure they get into the office straight. 
you know, they're, they're so scared. He's worried customers will soon feel the same. This is going to, you know, drop our business. The business has filed reports with Houston police, but officers told them and us this is a civil matter. They can't do anything until they like physically hurt someone. HPD encouraged the business to hire a private investigator to find the dog's owner, if there is one, so they can sue. We cannot sell these cars now. They tell us they do not want to put this on their own insurance and estimate they're out anywhere from one hundred to three hundred fifty thousand dollars. Wow. Still, their primary concern, you can't put a price on. We don't want to wait until someone really gets, you know, hurt. Now, thankfully, the dealership, they're moving next month. You can see their current property. It's surrounded by a fence. There is a small gap that runs underneath, which is how they think the dogs might be getting in, but they're, they're not entirely sure. Houston police recommends anybody in a similar situation, which I imagine is incredibly rare, makes it as difficult as possible for animals to gain access to their property. Wow. So this was in uh, Harris County, Texas. Carjo. The car, ra the rabid car destroying dogs. Carjos. <laughs> oh my God. Did you see the, the power of the, just yanking the, uh, the front bumper off that? I think it was an Audi. Holy smokes. I wouldn't want to come face to face with Carjo in the middle of the night. No, sir. I mean, he's meaner than a junkyard dog, ain't he? Yes, sir. Carjo. Don't want to tangle with him. Um, now, what else do I have for you? I have this. Oh, this is so beautiful. Okay. This. I'm not getting paid for this. I swear to God. I'm not getting a penny. Not getting a penny. But General Motors. You're going to get a free commercial tonight. They've produced this fantastic spot. I'll tell you right now, it's commercial. It doesn't start off like a commercial. It's, it's better than a commercial. This is new Americana and new Canadiana. And just in time for Christmas. It is... I don't know. I just I, I just happened to see this today. I want to share it with you. It just touched me. They just. I'm just going to run it. Just going to run it. Hello there. Grabs. Hope you got you a present. We hope you like it. Come on. How is she? Good days and bad, Lars, but uh, the love is always there. More bad days than good? But some of the days is when she doesn't even recognize me. I'm so sorry, Daddy. Oh, my God. 
Born in that house. Oh. Here's your old high school. Wish that I could wish for you. Bill. My first horror movie. I'm not sure Mom ever forgave you for that. We put a whole lot of you in the back of this thing. Yeah. That's right. Me, Chris, Jeff. Bill. Jeff is a troublemaker. Graham says this is where he first kissed you. No. I kissed him. He was far too shy. Bill, I need to see Bill. Oh, he can't do the dinner alone. Sunshine, almost all the time makes me high sunshine almost always oh my god be together. <laughs> be careful. Oh, yeah. Hi, Watch your step. You got it? I do. Yeah? I have it. All right. I have it. <laughs> You've always oh. been the clever one. <laughs> Merry Christmas, <laughs> oh. Merry Christmas. Oh. 
Let's go, Let's go in. in. If I had a day that I could give you, I'd give to you a day just like today. They're not just cars, they're memories. See you guys tomorrow. This has been a Maverick Multimedia Productions.